0: Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Chris O'Fall, the editor of The Toolkit, and my guest today is director Barry Jenkins, who's talking about his new film, If Beale Street Could Talk. Today's show is supported by Sony Pictures Classics, presenting the Golden Globe-nominated Capernaum, a new film by Dean Labaki about the journey of a clever, gutsy 12-year-old boy, Zion, who survives the cacophony and drama of the city streets by his wits. He flees his parents, and to assert his rights, takes them to court, suing them for the crime of giving him life. The New York Times Critic's Pick is now playing in New York and Los Angeles and opens this Friday in San Francisco, coming soon to a theater near you. You know, movies are so good about making us fall in love or, or want a connection. Mm-hmm. Or you did it beautifully in the third act of Moonlight, wanting Sharon to kind of get over himself and, and be with Andre. But this movie is interesting to me because I think, in watching it again last night, it's about love. It's about feeling love, which is a harder thing to do because the other is like a is a conflict, is a is something you, to make us want that desire. But this is like living in a moment and expanding in it and making us feel love. And I, I think about it. I don't think I've ever seen or felt anything like that on screen before.
1: You know, I think part of that is: Have you seen a James Baldwin adaptation on screen before? There hasn't been one. So I'll I'll I'll, I'll just extend all praise to uh, the source material to James Baldwin. You know, you, you described it uh, perfectly, or, or the way I like to describe it, which is, it's not about seeing the love; it's about feeling it. Um, and I think one of the really uh, beautiful things about adapting this work from the page to the screen is, intellectually, as you read it, you can read. You know, Baldwin can describe how that love feels. But in a cinema, you know, you're watching these actors, and so I think you're feeling it with them. Um, That was our key objective in in casting the piece and in sort of building it, you know, bringing all these elements together. You know, the score, you know, the performances, the cinematography, all those things are kind of trying to add up to this feeling. You know, and I would have never have gone into production going, this movie is about love, you know, did we get the love take? Okay, we gotta get the love take. You know, I I would never want to do that. But I think that the spirit of the source material was definitely rooted in that place. And I think you can see it in all elements of the film.
0: You know, it feels and it's paced differently, there's this expanse
1: Mm -hmm. here. that one,
0: I assume this is what you were feeling and you're trying to translate when you're you're reading Baldwin. But, you know, when you were starting and you had to translate this to your collaborators, to the Mm -hmm. people that want to make this movie, and you're trying to give the, how did you describe that? Because you're incredibly eloquent talking about your material, but this is something that's almost abstract Mm -hmm. in living in this moment. Like, I don't even know how you would explain that funny um, love scene in 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 his studio. Mm -hmm. How did you even describe this you know, I thought their trailer captured it perfectly. Mm, thank you. There's, but there's a pace and a feel and expanse to this that, I once again, I, I, I can't think of a parallel here in you, cinema. You know,
1: this is gonna go come, come off the wrong way, but you know, the, the way Baldwin writes, I mm. think, was like the the primary sort of guidepost for you know for all elements uh, of this film. You know, for the production design, the cinematography. You know, for the way I approached um, the dialogue and the scene description. And the way Baldwin writes is sometimes, you know, you'll look at a paragraph and there'll be no periods in it. You know, it's just this, this running collection of moods and thoughts and feelings that feel like these waves sort of cascading, you know, across one another. And I think everyone who worked on the film had as much reverence, probably more reverence for the source material as for the script. But this other thing happened where we were all bringing all this interior interiority that's present in the book, you know, all these pages that you could never get every single one of them into the script, but the feeling of that was always with us. And so it wasn't a thing that I had to come up with the language to describe to the crew or to the actors. You know, this really almost esoteric feeling we're going for, but crystallizing into actions. You know, it was already there in the text. And I was very open uh, with the cast in particular that, hey, if you want to talk about something that's in the book, but that's not in the script, we can talk about that. Because you know, I do think there's a direct path from here to there. And it's not that this thing that's not in the script has been discarded. No, it's still in the character, and we can talk about that.
0: Yeah. You know, I think I'm remembering this correctly. You were introduced to Baldwin in, I think, college. I think I'd read a mentor or professor mm-hmm. had shared it. It meant something to you instantly, and you were devouring it. But there was a concept here of you know at the time you were in film school and you went on to you know think of yourself as a filmmaker in that career and the idea of Baldwin being cinema really didn't it only it only struck later when this is a book that you hadn't read in that kind of like wave of reading all the Baldwin and there was something about this one that felt. I understand what you're saying about his language and I think that applies to a lot of his work. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think of being in that jazz club and that atmosphere and that feel. Exactly. And uh, I it was that Sonny's Blues, but the, uh, what was it about this one that's mm-hmm. obviously always spoke to you, but spoke to you in terms of cinema and in images?
1: You know, it's it's funny. I'll say the way he describes everything in this book is so specific, such a level of detail. You know, the first time Tish and Bonnie make love is like, I don't know, it's like almost like a cross between watching an episode of The Nick and also watching the piano, you know it's like a blend of those two things. I mean, just very expressive uh, language in the way he built um, these scenes. But then on top of that, and I, I don't mean this uh, as a joke or to be glib. you know this book is kind of James Baldwin writing a thriller, you know, which is a very interesting thing uh, for Baldwin to undertake because he's still bringing this protest novel aesthetic to the proceedings. Um, But at the same time, he's trying to unravel, get at the heart, you know, of this mystery and in a certain way, you know, did he or didn't he? You know, of course he didn't, you know, uh, but what happened? Um, And I just thought that was really provocative, you know, a filmmaker friend gave me this book and said, hey, I think you should make a movie of this, which usually goes in one ear out the other. Um, (laughs) But uh, this was a person I trusted. And so I did read it with that in mind. And I felt like all the qualities of all the Baldwin that we love, the really rich, expressive language, the very deep, dense dive um, into human feelings was there, Um, but there were all these other things too. And once I got like halfway into it, it kind of confirmed my suspicions. And I think
0: what you're talking about there in terms of the plotting, of course, is this Mm -hmm. uh, Fonny, you know, facing... Well, he's in prison, but mm-hmm. falsely accused, mm-hmm. and so there's like external plot things to play with that you don't normally have, and, and then a you, James the novel, yeah, exactly. And then you have, you do have that expressive feelings mm-hmm. and emotions that you do have. Mm-hmm. I imagine that just the power of the falsely accused man narrative and what that means and balancing it with that emotion and feel. I mean, the way you structure this film is so fascinating, but I have to imagine that's
1: a tricky balance because you can't lean too heavily. A, a very tricky balance. Uh, I think the most uh, complex element of building this film, both at the script uh, stage, but then also, you know, even with Moonlight, you, you make the film and then you get in post and you make the film again. Uh, in post, it was really interesting to, as you say, find this balance between the very lush, romantic aspects of the film the procedural aspects of the film and in a certain way the almost Baldwin-esque protest novel essayistic commentary um, on life um, and on America um, in a certain way it was really tricky and I think what ended up happening was as much as I love the source material at a certain point the film becomes the film you know the film asserts itself and I, I like to say that the film is like a human body or an organism. And eventually it starts to tell you that it's rejecting certain things. And so that was the voice that we kind of listened to. And I think ultimately we ended up in a really good place. But it was, did you say delicate or difficult? <laughs> well, it's I difficult mean, because, it was a because tricky I, process. I think yeah. the thing
0: is, is that when you're reading a book, when you're reading Baldwin, that power of the interiority, it mm-hmm. dominates. And in a movie plotting aspects with a, a conflict and feeling like a ticking clock yeah. is, is something, and it's like, is this the, the, element. The, 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 it,
1: it's essential. Yeah, you know, but, it's essential.
0: but you have to pull, but it can overpower. So it's like you've got it in a way that I don't think it does when you're. It can,
1: it, it can overpower, and the thing about adapting Baldwin is that interior voice is so seductive. You know? right. I could just live in that. Let me just make an entire film that's just that interior voice, you know. But that's not dramatic, you know? that's not drama and so it was a process of you know, really like drilling down and digging in and getting to a place where we did feel like neither element of the story was outweighing the other, and they both were serving the greater narrative.
0: And The thing that I thought that was so powerful about what you did was um, eventually, this does kind of become Tish's point of view. Mm-hmm. You know Fani is obviously right there, but he's behind glass, and and we see anger and we see everything, but it's it's kind of like what you did in Moonlight, where we have to fill in the gap of what's mm-hmm. going on behind that glass. Mm-hmm. And we're experiencing it through her, and then that incredible scene, uh, with Brian Tyree Henry mm-hmm. and and that is something, in, in and of itself it's a beautiful scene, but then it overhangs, right? So it's like, mm-hmm. the fact that Trish, that scene ends with Trish hearing it. Mm-hmm. It's like, I feel like that might have been the thing that had it, was experiencing it through her and mm-hmm. seeing what's happening to her man. It feels like the balance uh, yeah. is like kind of the, a, a very key device there in terms mm-hmm. of balancing the two. am I wrong? Or? No,
1: no, you're right. And um, I think also too, there are certain things that men can say, say to each other only when they're extremely comfortable and they assume no one else is listening. Yeah. So I think, you know, in the middle of that scene, she re-enters um, the kitchen, and I hope the audience realizes she was always there mm. and she was listening the entire time. Uh, but for them, it feels like she's not there. And so, in a way, you're right. I'm glad you used the, ter- the phrase uh, point of view. We sort of shift the point of view for that moment. I mean. She's since is there. Fonny ran into uh, Fonny was walking down Lennox Avenue when he ran into Daniel. She's right now going, I'm giving the movie to Fonny and Daniel. But then she comes back in the kitchen, and the audience hopefully perks up and goes, Oh, she's back. Mm-hmm. And so, as this thing is going on with these two men, of course, someone's listening. Um, and it's one of those really lovely things that we kind of learned on Moonlight. As you said, the scene kind of hangs over the rest of the film. You know, one of the really, one of the one of the the wilder bets, or the 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 more risky bets that paid off in Moonlight, is we don't say anything of how Juan passed away. We just and we don't. There's no funeral. We just we just move on with it, and his presence lingers because of that. The audience is there wondering what happened to Juan. What happened to Mahershala Ali? I like that guy, and the kid in the film is also going, "What happened to Juan? You know, I really like that guy. You know, why did he abandon me? Why did the world take him from me? Etc. And so forth." I think in this film. You know, you sort of get all this context uh, this is the family and this is the world. And then this guy just waltzes into the film, where you've not seen before. You've maybe heard heard him mention, Daniel Cardi, the lawyer says. And I think Brian does this wonderful job of showing that he and Fonny are in the same place. They're these young men with so much life ahead of them and then he starts to reveal these scars. And hopefully, as you said, because that scene hangs over the rest of the film. You kind of understand that this is the fate that is waiting to befall Fani. When
0: we see uh, Stefan through the glass, yes, we write all of that. That and that onto, him. onto exactly. him and also through her and it's incredible mm-hmm. and you know the one thing just to go back to Moonlight is the thing about what happens in that second chapter is we all it's emotion we feel mm-hmm. his displacement we feel like mm-hmm. what it's like to be abandoned. Mm-hmm. in that in that same way it's, it's an incredibly strong it's an incredible structured
1: device you know that that's what's cool about because this is an adaptation and I guess Moonlight was um, as well that's what's cool about taking these things from one form from literature and bringing them and to cinema, You know, we keep talking about emotions, you know. And I think you, you feel, I mean, of course, you feel a million things when you're reading uh, a text. You feel them over a much more widespread period of time. You know, you might read something on page 20 that's really evocative, and then on page 120, you know, there might have been eight days or at least eight hours that passed between those two things. In a feature film, these feelings are coming back to back to back to back. And not only that, in a theater, you're sharing them with other people, you read a book in your head, you know. You watch a movie with a community. Um, it's a really wonderful thing, and I think the emotion that you describe hanging over the rest of the film, I think an audience sits there and they're all collectively hanging in this emotion as well. Um, there was a screening that we attended where, when Fani shows up in the last prison visit, and we cut to the intertronic, the director camera, and you can fully see his eye with a little blood clot, and I heard a woman go. <gasps> Cause she felt it you know yeah. she felt it even though we don't show what's happened to him she feels what happened to him yeah. um, that's cinema
0: yeah it's something you know it, i feel like that idea of if you if you could make that happen in someone's head versus seeing him actually get beat or whatever happened to him mm-hmm. it's it's more powerful mm-hmm. and, and it has a different effect um you know with moonlight i could feel um your influences. I could feel the, f- the films that your film was in conversation with in this wonderful way. Mm-hmm. This film, I, I do see um, some use of color that reminds me of you know Hollywood melodramas mm-hmm. and, and, and mm-hmm. certainly speaks to uh, some aspect of that, and the period and, and it's wonderful to see a black love story use some of those old devices but in mm-hmm. general outside of that reference, and this is just me, I, I didn't I don't feel um, as much of a direct conversation with other films. I mm-hmm. feel I, I, I'm wondering, you know, I know um, your good friend and collaborator James Laxton. This is something where Moonlight was so dependent upon you guys figuring out that language beforehand. Yeah, and then production becomes this thing where he can execute that. I'm wondering what was that shared language in those conversations and figuring. It, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there are dense influences here no. that I just don't see.
1: No, no, no. It's 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 a we took a different path with this one. Um, one because it's Baldwin. There's just so much richness in the text that that was, even though it's literature, it was almost like visual inspiration in a certain way. Um, reading uh, this work and and and, uh, and allowing the source material to be an active source of inspiration. Not something we could, now it's a script. The book is in the past. You know, no, we kept it with us. You know, it was an active source of inspiration. But the other thing was we we found ourselves looking at a lot of still photography from the period. The work of uh, Roy Dicarava, uh Gordon Parks, um, even some a bit later from, uh, from Dawu Bay. Anybody who had been in Harlem was really documenting uh, the, the spaces and faces. And there's even a scene where Tish and Fani are walking down uh, the sidewalk. It's actually a shot that's in the, the teaser, uh, the first teaser that dropped on Baldwin, Baldwin's birthday. They're walking down the sidewalk and the camera just pans over to the left you know, these kids jumping up and down on like a burnt out car, like a rusted car, that's taken directly from visual research, you know, because there were all these vacant lots um, in Harlem and the kids would basically, through ingenuity, fashion them into playgrounds. You know, the city's not gonna come uptown to tow that car, great, we'll just jump on the hood, it's really bouncy. Um, and we took things like that and actually put them into, um, the scene, you know, and we built scenes around replicating um, those images to evoke the feeling that visual research gave us but also to have uh, a fidelity to the period, so it wasn't um, like Moonlight where you could very clearly see these guys have watched way too much Chunking Express or too much In the Mood for Love, you know, this guy is way too obsessed with Beau Travai, you know, um, with this film... No, no,
0: you're never too obsessed with Beau Travai.
1: Exactly. <laughs> with this film, you know, I felt like you know the scene where those two uh, families come together is like a kitchen sink melodrama. You know, and Hollywood made some of the best kitchen sink melodramas in the world. You know, during the gold, the golden age. So um, I think when people say, "Oh, this kind of reminds me of the work of like Douglas Sirk or or, or, or Mr. Minnelli, I'm like, "Yeah,
0: <laughs> the color palette of that time. There was a conscious effort. I guess that's other. There's an incredible warmth to mm-hmm. the cinematography." Um, and the skin—I've just never. I I thought I loved what you guys did with uh, dark skin and, um, and moonlight. moonlight. This yeah. is this is a whole different thing where it's like, I. Eat. I, I, I can only imagine the tests that Alex and James must have done to to yes. To, yes. to get that exact glow mm-hmm. on these mm-hmm. uh, beautiful actors' faces. But um that I guess that is that the, the color palette and also working with your costume designer mm-hmm. I I mis- that is that that trying to get those really almost Technicolor primary colors is a yeah. conscious effort. But
1: you know what's funny, Baldwin actually wrote like literally he described the dresses, you know, he described the hair, especially when the hunts come over. Uh, because they have just, they have uh, larger means or more money than, uh, than Tisha's family. And Frank, Fonnie's dad, is a tailor. So they're dressed very well. And Baldwin took his time describing how they're dressed. And we took our cues from that. And you know just like with Moonlight, it would have been, it would have been dis, disingenuine. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but it just, it would have felt false to have tried to paint the entire picture in the energy of Fahmy behind glass, you know? To me, there was this idea in the writing of this almost uh, ecstatic nature um, amongst black folks when they're surrounded by by family, by community, or when they allow themselves to live fully uh, in their love. And so I think part of the film um, wanted to uh, replicate or reflect that ecstatic feeling, you know? I call it the aesthetic of the ecstatic. <laughs> um, and it's why some of the colors uh, pulse and saturate. Um, I think with the pulsing and saturation of Titian Fani's love. so
0: and no one is better at transforming New York into the exact expressive set that you need than Mark Friedberg. Yeah, and, yeah uh, he's a genius. And um, yeah. I was very excited that when, right from the start when I saw that he was was on this. And and, and let's talk about that that the house and these you know mm-hmm. spending time with his family and feeling the, the and feeling their love and also feeling you know spending time with them mm-hmm. and the say and. and, this thing, and, and these spaces. I mean, we'll start with the the, the home, uh, mm-hmm. the family home. But I also definitely want to talk about uh, Fonny's apartment studio. Yeah. I mean, these are. Um, I mean, they're, they're 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 these these spaces hug you and make you feel yeah. like part of a family.
1: Yeah. You know, it was again uh, just like with uh, with uh, with everyone else, all the other figureheads or department heads. You know, uh, Freberg, Mr. Freeberg, <laughs> Mr. Marcus Freeberg. He uh, he was really diligent about. Um, the visual research, and and doing whatever he could, you know, w- within our budget to do the best job of creating things that had this sort of like very lived-in quality, this this patina. And so, the Rivers' home, um, where Sharon played by Regina King and Coma Domingo and Tiana Paris and and uh, and Kiki Lane, where they live, it was an actual uh, a brownstone up in Harlem uh, near 135th and the place was in the process of being uh, gutted. Uh, it was being flipped uh, for, for renovation. Um, gen- slash, gen- I was gonna gen- say. Gen- After gen- uh, gen- <laughs> uh, <no. laughs> medicine, I tried <laughs> to say the word, but yeah, gentrification. <laughs> and, so, um, and so Mark had this really wonderful idea. He was like, look, we could build this on a soundstage, but how cool would it be to actually be in Harlem? You know, I, I found this house. You know, The guy's gonna flip it anyway. We'll gut it. And he's like, we'll build our set. I'm using air quotes, you know, the family's apartment would be on the second story, you know, production can be on the first story, and the actress can have the third story. And so it was this place that became kind of our home for a couple of weeks of production. And and what I love about Mark is there are just so many little details in the script. You know, when Regina says or Sharon says, get the good glasses, you know, she goes up, gets on a stepladder and goes up into the top shelf of the cabinet because If you're like a poor to working poor class uh, family, you know you're gonna have one bottle of good booze, and it's gonna be somewhere where you have to make an effort to get to it. You know, just little details like that, because that space was completely empty. You know, he gutted it, and then he rebuilt it. The
0: idea that they were gonna have to gut it anyway, so you don't have to buy the building, and he's like, let me have, let me, he, you guys have to pay to get it gutted, he's gonna build the set, and then return it to.
1: Exactly, and, and the cherry on the top, Mark is so smart, he was like, and you can tell people a James Baldwin adaptation was filmed here. Boom. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Fonny's flat, which, which you mentioned. Uh, Fonny's Bank Street flat. Oh my god, uh, the place is so expressive. It's
0: like that, that one is like a silent film. Like so, somebody had a game. It like, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. I mean, so,
1: so, so that one we did build on a stage, you know, so that's a total build. And Mark was, again, Mark is so great about allowing for creativity, but also working within uh, the plausibility uh, of the characterization, by which I mean, Fonny can only afford a certain kind of apartment. Um, and this apartment is a basement flat, you know, like on a very modest street, you know, in the village. And so Mark was really adamant that the dimensions had to be a certain way. Oh, the bed is beneath the stairwell, you know, and also, oh, there, there's no kitchen. And so the bathtub has this wooden slab that goes over it to make it double for a table, you know. And because it's a basement apartment, there has to be a crack in the wall like this foundation is coming apart. That's the only apartment he can afford. Mark was adamant about this, and he brought so in a in
0: sense that you could feel like there's a I, there's a there's a crack to it. So it doesn't it feels like a structure that exactly.
1: Is. And if you and even though it's a set built on a soundstage, Mark brought this draftsman out of retirement. This like eighty plus year old guy because he was the only one Mark trusted to build that crack in the foundation uh, the way it actually would have been. And and I think that level of detail. Yeah, you go, oh, but does anybody ever notice that crack? But then the actors walk in, and they can pick up things, you know? If an actor leans on a wall, his hand's going to touch that crack, and it's actually there, you know?
0: It's different than intellectualizing it. Oh, this crack means this. You feel things like that, and you see, sh- you know... It... Well,
1: and case in point, that scene between Stefan uh, James and Brian Tyree Henry, we filmed it one day, um, the entirety, everything from them walking in the door, the dinner afterwards, both sides of the conversation, her coming in, all that was just one day and a 12-hour day, not like an 18-hour day. And I think that the reason why we could do that so fluidly was because those guys weren't on a soundstage. They just felt like they were in this flat, you know? It was just a really, really wonderful process of seeing somebody take the ideas in the script and that were in my head and in James's head and really working with Chris Moran who was his, uh, his set, set designer, really just, I mean, patina, man, it's the word that, you know, you, you could touch things. I just love walking on a set and you can touch things.
0: You know, the other one is, is um, the, the, the love scene, um, mm-hmm. which has so many different beats to it mm-hmm. and the jazz ends, mm-hmm. and that feeling of being in an old apartment, yeah. and you can feel it's like it's beyond the rain. Mm-hmm. Everybody uses rain sound effects, but mm-hmm. there was something about you can feel what it feels to be in this thing that like it's kind of almost outside. There's like elements to mm-hmm. it, and it, mm-hmm. and that expressiveness is. I mean, I I have not seen a, a set be used that expressively in that many different ways oh, thank in a, you, man. a long time. Hey, that's
1: a hat tip to Mark and, and, uh, and, and Chris, and Chris Moran. I, I tip my hat to them. The other
0: thing I was is that that really had to be a set, because also it allowed you and James to do so many things with a camera that you can't do on location in, in, in
1: things. I, I will say the only time where we did that was um, was for the actual, the love making Warner mm-hmm. Master Shot. It's the only time we, we took out a wall because the wall, the, the camera's basically where the wall beside the bed would be. Every other shot in there, every other shot in there, we live within the confines of the room. Except for when Fani is working on the wood, I want that to be, you're the first person to ask me about this, by the way. I wanted that to be extremely expressive, heightened imagery. You know, this is a guy in prison who is having this fantasy of the life that he's losing. And so I thought, yeah, it's a basement apartment, but I need the sun to pour into that place. And so we took the roof off the set. Because, again, Mark is just so good about building things to code, but giving me the freedom. And so we took the roof off the set, and James just blasted light right down on top of him. And so when he's smoking the cigarette, it looks really gorgeous, but that wasn't the point. You know. The point was, if you're a man who's losing freedom then you're going to force freedom, you know, even where it implausibly, you know, where, where the plausibility factor, it should not be. And so there should not be a sunbeam beaming down on this sculpture, uh, this, this piece of, of, uh, of sculpture. But in this moment, there is. And so you're right, we could not have done that if we'd actually gone to <laughs> a basement apartment. So kudos to you, <laughs> Um
0: The other thing is, uh, this is another beautiful score by Nicholas Bertel. Mm-hmm. Um, But there's there's other things since we're talking about these scenes and Fonnies I'm thinking in particular of once again the first lovemaking scene, but I think Mm -hmm. it applies in general Um, This use of strings and the stirring of emotion Mm -hmm. in the cue is these Expansive love scenes Mm -hmm. not you know you you, that kind of swirling becomes Where that cue we're so used to music being used in a different way, you know, and there's it, it 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 kind of, it's a dangerous thing, because it's like, how much are you going to, how much are you going to inject that with, mm-hmm, like, a, mm-hmm. the, the the tension of a string, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing in the way that that was used, but I have to imagine that's that's something that's really, because it, it's it's unorthodox, I think, in the way of
1: using it. Uh, a, a little bit, and, and we, you know, we don't ever know where we're going to end up as we're creating this music, uh, myself and, and Nicholas, or uh, Bertel, our composer on this film, and, on Moonlight, but we also aren't afraid to to end up in, in, in places that we didn't expect. And with this film, you know, we just assumed we were gonna have a very jazzy score, um, but we realized very early that that couldn't be uh, the, the end all be all, that couldn't be the score in totality. It was going to be an element of it. And so yeah, the strings with, I'm glad you used the word tension, with this element of tension, um, Started to assert themselves and become very prominent in the emotional build of the music, and I think where that comes from is, and at the screening last night, you know, one of uh, the Baldwin family members, I believe it was Aisha Karifa Smart, said that that black Black love um, as presented um, in this book and in this film is in itself um, a radical act or, or defiant act. Um, and I think you're right, you put your finger on the pulse, that we use some musical elements that are normally uh, ascribed to tension you know, or conflict. We use those things to underscore, in some ways, some of the most tender moments um, in this film. And I think it's probably proof positive of, in the duality of building the narrative, Baldwin is showing, because this love is so pure, so vibrant, because Fonny is such a pure, vibrant soul, in a way, of course, that was going to rub the world the wrong way. Of course, that was going to put him in a position to um, to run afoul of whatever systemic uh, pressures or systemic rules or delineations um, exist out there. You know, of course, you know to use now a twenty eighteen term. You know, this black man being carefree and black is going to somehow come upon or run into a scenario in which just because or just by, by dint of not looking away from this officer when he approaches him, by looking him in the eye, the switch or the, the, the red wire's been cut, you know? And so I think when you're building music that on the surface looks like it's saying one thing, it's always nice to go, oh, but it can say so much more, and to that point, the same song that plays when Tish and Fonny first make love, the same melody is what's playing beneath Brian Tyree Henry mm-hmm. as he's slowly devolving into his post-traumatic stress. It's the same melody, but now it's, it's, it's got a whole different meaning, a whole different tone because the character is attached to him what he's feeling has a whole different tone as well.
0: 'cause I, I watched Widows in Beale Street the same within the same twenty four hours. Oh my and, goodness. And I'd only seen him in Atlanta. I'm sure you have a lot more experience with him than I did. And I was it that blew me away when Tyree Henry I, I just I didn't know that was, you know I mean he's great in Atlanta, but it's yeah. just like that just, I just blew my mind.
1: He's so talented. And just like all the other actors, he had a love of the text that he allowed himself to bring into That's the character. Great.
0: I wanna just switch gears before let you go real quick. Um, your next adaptation is Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be a ten-part, I think, ten-part series mm-hmm. um, uh, for Amazon. Uh, it sounds like you're gonna do all ten as a director, mm-hmm. and I, it's something I've been writing about and talking to a lot of different showrunners and directors about. In that, there's that challenge of how, as a director, because mm-hmm. you know these things are usually checkerboard. It's prep. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you've directed TV for other people, and mm-hmm. it's like that element of prep, shoot, mm-hmm. and it's hard when everybody's turning to you for the answers, Mm -hmm. and is this something where it's gonna take a lot of prep, and you're going to try and get a lot of that done beforehand. Are you gonna split it up into blocks? Like, it, it, the idea of you doing a 10-part series is so exciting to me, but it's just such a challenge compared to how you normally work. I'm yeah. wondering if that's something that you're you know, starting to tackle.
1: Yeah, well we're starting to tackle it now. We're, we're in, I guess, the earliest, earliest stages of pre-production right now. You know, Moonlight was a 25-day shoot. This was 32 days, so I'm not someone who has experience you know, with very, very long shoots. Um, you know, we have very smart people working with us. Um, and so we're trying to create a, a production footprint where there are a couple breaks mm. sort of built in. Um, but I think with anything, you want to prep for as long and as much as possible, you know. I, I, I want to say the, the prep for Roma was like almost damn near a year, you know. <laughs> but then you see the execution of the ideas. It's just like so, everybody's so on the same page. There's a synchronicity there. It almost becomes... Like a symphony, and so uh, I do think there will be um, quite a lengthy prep you know on this, and I will be eating all my vitamins you know, and nothing but veggies, um, but I think also too, when I first read the novel, I just felt like the only way to tell this story was in long form, mm. and I hope that by giving it a unifying visual uh, voice that whatever I felt when I first read the novel will reach it to the screen all
0: right, Barry Jenkins. Uh If Beale Street Could Talk, it's a wonderful film. Once again, Barry, thank you for taking the time.
1: Thank you, man. Nice to be back, bro.